My name is David Fairclough. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You're going to get into, out the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm -hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you yeah. regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today we're talking to David Fairclough. Yeah, my name is David Fairclough. Uh, I used to play for Liverpool quite a number of years ago, my sins, and uh, amongst other things, played in Switzerland, Belgium, also for Tramier Rovers, for those who are Rovers fans with us. So uh, <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a, a mixed bag, but uh, people mostly remember me from my Liverpool days. Joining me in the studio today, it's the two chaps, the two boys, the loves of my life, the men that I need close to me. It's Ant and it's Ryan. Fellas, how are we? Ryan, how are we, mate? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm great, thanks, mate. How are you? What an introduction. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm just feeling the love this evening. And it's, you know, this the weather this past week or so has been balmy. Let's put, let's let's make that clear. It's been balmy. And I'm, I'm just feeling those good sort of vitamins from it and feeling Very those good muggy. vibes. Yeah, muggy. I'm a bit sweaty while I'm sat here. I'm not going to lie. Lovely visual image for the listener. Mm. And how are you, mate? I'm good. It's uh, it's England Scotland week. It is. I'm uh, I'm jacked. Jacked to the tits. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> oh, he's excited, listeners. He's excited. Welcome to you, the listener. Welcome to any new listeners who we have retained from our Sam Hutchinson episode <laughs> last week. All left They've all got. It's like it's like when um. You, 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 you're having a party so you'd have a house party and uh, your mum pops in on the way home from work don't know what this analogy is <laughs> it'll it'll make sense when I finish it oh it's quite quite busy good good turnout this isn't it good turnout she's you know you've said oh mum just drop off some some dips on the way home and then later on that evening for whatever reason she's got to come back and everyone's left ah oh, all your friends have left haven't they <laughs> Okay, it's kind yeah. of a bit. It's a bit like that. Possibly, possibly. Yeah, stretched analogy that isn't yeah, it? Somewhat. A little bit. Anyway, let's move on to today's episode where we are speaking to David Fairclough. Yeah, bit of a, a, a sort of cult hero, bit of an icon in there in these parts, isn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, super sub. Super sub. As that comes up a lot. It does, and it's always come up a lot for him. It has. Um, talked about the ins and outs of that, didn't we? We do. Um. We got in touch with him from your friend, didn't we, Dan? We did, yeah, a friend of mine at work who put us in touch with uh, with David, and he was very, very happy to come on and speak with us, wasn't he? Yeah, and I think to speak to someone of that era, yeah. who I think there's a bit, and I, this isn't a spoiler, and it's not a spoiler for anyone listening. <laughs> um, to Play for Liverpool. Yeah, play for Liverpool, and said, I didn't lose a game in my first season. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of just gives you an indication as to, you know, for any younger listeners who don't remember or know of that era of Liverpool, 
they were quite good. Yeah, they were, they were a they, bit they, more than good, weren't they? Yeah, they were quite good. So, yeah, yeah it was... Uh, well, English teams at that time were pretty good as well. Um, oh, yeah. So you had Forest as well, didn't you? And, and United coming up. And Everton. And Everton as well, yeah. Can't forget about them. Whisper it, Everton. Yeah, Everton they were quietly. quite good too. I know. So, yeah, so having David Fairclough on the show was an absolute pleasure for us. It was, uh, as you say, I think we, we sometimes... You know, we do a lot of interviews, don't we? We speak to a lot of people, put a lot of episodes out there. And sometimes I think we have to stop and check and go, that was David Fairclough mm. that we were just speaking to. So, yeah, huge thanks to David for coming on the podcast, giving us his time. Mm. It's an absolute pleasure. Ryan? Yep. We always have a theme, mate, don't we? We do. This week's theme is reinventing yourself to cope with grief. Fantastic. And that's our theme, listener. If you come up with anything yourself, anything you want us to discuss, then you can get in touch with us. Our email is manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use that hashtag, where's the talking lads. We're now going to hand you over to David, and then we'll see you very briefly on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. Talking about yourself then, David, growing up sort of in Liverpool in, in the 60s, which by all counts was a pretty tough period and a tough area. What, what was that like? You know, when I look back on it, I think it was fantastic. I grew up in Everton. Uh, not a great deal to do in terms of facilities. So we made our own fun. And, um, you know, my mum my and, well, my mum now, she, she says her earliest memories of me was kicking a ball. So as soon as I could walk, I was kicking a ball. We lived in a two up, two down in a terraced, terraced house. Um, so you didn't spend a lot of time indoors. It was all outdoors. It was playing football, playing cricket, um, running games, you know, all the old Liverpool favourites kicked the can and, you know, knock on the door and run away, thunder and lightning and all that type of stuff. Um, so we occupied ourselves and everything seemed to be based around activity, running and, um, and unwittingly, you know, you're kind of, you know, you're developing your own sort of skills your natural your natural skills you, you, you're kind of a you're uh, what's the word but you're you know when when you, you grow you're a victim of your of your circumstances on you and you, yeah, and you benefit from the circumstances that you go climbing up walls and things like that and my mother had known that the risks that we were taking climbing over on backyard walls and on all these different things so they'd have probably had a fit, but you, you just picked up your common sense and everything was based around action and activity. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, cities like Liverpool have always had that um, that sort of tag that they develop street footballers, which is, as you say, just learning your, your skills on the street, playing football constantly. And almost like uh, Wayne Mooney, when he first came about, was almost like a throwback to that, wasn't he? Of like a, a street footballer that you probably don't see as much anymore. Now, there, there, was, there was a time when it, it, it began to change and, and obviously Wayne came on the scene and, and he did resemble something of maybe of a few years before. Um, but, um, you know, Liverpool has always produced footballers for, you know, 100 years, you know, it, it's produced football, still will do, but they've obviously changed the ways of how that all comes about now. I mean, 1970, we, we were... We were moved out of the Everton area, given an option to to move into one of the new towns that that basically were, were coming about and estates 
we moved to Cantrell Farm. And, um, you know, for us then, playing football on fields and stuff like that, it was just unbelievable. It was, you know, such a difference from learning all my football, playing on cobbled streets and, you know, as we would call the Ola, you know, the, the sort of yeah. waste ground in the, in, in, you know, that you, would, that you would have available. All of a sudden I was playing football on grass and uh, it, was, it was unbelievable. It was, it was an incredible, um, it was an incredible move. And I, I don't kind of, you know, Cantrell Farm as it was then has something of a notorious um, reputation. But I look back on it with, with great fondness as well, because mm-hmm. I, had a, I had a great, I had a great sort of growing up in, you know, a mix between Everton and Cantrell Farm. It was, uh, you know, it, it was superb. When I look back on it, I probably wouldn't have changed it. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't have changed it. It was brilliant. And you end up getting spotted by Liverpool, I think, when, when you were a teenager. How did that come about and, and what was that like at the time? Well, I'd never played, Sunday League was only just sort of emerging when I was, how old? Sunday League was probably only emerging, late 60s-ish, 1969, 70. I, I certainly wasn't aware of it until I went to senior school. And um, being in senior, mixing with some lads from different areas once I was in senior school. They said they had a Sunday league team, and would I want? Did I want to play for them, for them? That turned out to be in Bootle and Lidland. So I was still living as Everton at that point, but um, it seems to be that my name was was had popped up in a, in a couple of in a in a couple of circumstances. I played in a street competition in the Everton area, which was actually played on what is now Stanley Park car park. It used to be, I used to be a, a floodlit sort of um, gravel, uh, gravel pit, two pitches. So we used to play there. I played in a local tournament there, Liverpool. First, uh, apparently, well, they, they made a little bit of, they tried to make some contact with me then. Then I was I was spotted down in Bootle and Littleland. And uh, with them, uh, we moved to Cantrell Farm. And then my name popped up again. And it, they, they, it seems that they were trying to track me down, whether I was the same kid or not that was that had been sort of picked out in in three or four different locations. So they showed up on my doorstep at, um, when I was thirteen, and wow. uh, I signed. Um, I signed. That was on a Saturday. They watched me on a Sunday. I signed on the uh, the Thursday night for on schoolboy forms. You couldn't sign in those days until you were 13. So um, my dad was a big Liverpoolian. And um, although they, they had me very much fixed as, you know, going to, an, well, I went to an academic school. Uh, I think the thought of perhaps, you know, getting a shot at, at Liverpool and, and having some training and stuff like that, uh, my dad decided to go along with it. Brilliant. And then what, what was it like in an academy then? Well, it wasn't an academy then. It was it was just Tuesday and Thursday night training at Melwood, and okay. uh, you would show up for six for six o'clock in your own kit, you know whether or not it was blue, yellow, red, whatever, and um, just a big group of of lads. There were some lads who were around the sixteen mark, and and there were a few that were well, only a couple that were thirteen, <laughs> and. Um, that was your kind of real 
first experience of, of intense training, tough training as well, um, working a lot on stamina and, um, and, 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 and sort of taking you to another level. You know, sometimes where maybe you're younger and you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have stretched yourself as such. Um, that began to sort of extend you, you test you, you, you sort of, your, your stamina strength and things like that. So everybody was sort of de developing, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't, a, it was more based around physicality and, um, and then seeing how you sort of went into games and things. So we did a lot of running, a lot of um, small sided uh, sort of exercises. And then, then you'd finish off with a big game, and then it, the hope was that you, you perhaps showed enough to ultimately get into the, one of the the sort of youth teams at the time. They, they were they were the Liverpool C, B, and A teams, A, B, and the the the, the one sort of below the reserves. And that was just the, you know that was the, sort of a, the experience. It was it was fantastic. I mean, for me, from going down to going to going to Council Farm on the twelve C bus. I mean, I used to always look over Melwood's walls and, you know, hope that yeah. I'd see footballers running around there. All of a sudden now, I'm going through the gate, I'm going in the dressing rooms and I'm playing football there sort of a couple of nights a week. It was, uh, it was fantastic, you know, it, was, it kind of, you, you're, you're on the way, not so much, the, you, I don't think we ever really believed it, but you're kind of on the way to potentially the big time, you know yeah. what I mean? It's a, it's a big step, just even being in Melwood's gates was like a huge... A huge achievement and a, a huge thrill. And I suppose if you look at football nowadays and the, the setups that they have, the money that goes into it from from an awful young age, yeah, it must have been worlds apart to what it was like then. They were almost sounds like they were they were trying to build men at that stage. Yeah, they were. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there was a, there was a different emphasis on on footballers in that way. And, I, and I'll be honest, and I'll be upfront. I'm not a great fan of the the academy system. I, I really I, I really find it hard to 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 go along with what they're doing. You know, having kids in at five and six and all this type of stuff, uh, seven, eight, nine. You know, it's it's come down actually. It's come down the, the rather than um, stabilised at the you know a higher age. And I, I just. Yeah. I've seen too much of it. My son was involved in in the Everton Academy. I've seen a lot. I've been based around the PFA in my years, and I, I just don't subscribe to the fact that it's in the best interests of kids to be attached to football clubs at such a young age. So I think it's. I don't think until you're in secondary school should you be attached to a football club. To be honest. Yeah, it's a conversation we've had a few times on, on the podcast about kind of. It seems that clubs hoard players in the fear of missing out on that one, so they try and catch them early, don't they? But yeah, it, it's, it, it's there's elements of it that certainly don't sit right. That that's for sure. No, it, it's not. I, I can't condone it. I, I really can't. I, you know, I've seen plenty of it. I've got plenty of knowledge of it. I just can't subscribe to the fact that it's in the best interest of of kids. It's it's. Um, Football clubs are basically just trawling, you know, for want of a better expression. They cast the net and they hope that they're going to find a diamond in it. You're like, you know, and yeah. it's just lots of kids cause a lot of distress down the line for kids that, you know, feel that they they failed at such an early age. I don't think, I don't, I really can't see how it's healthy. Absolutely. And was the, I don't suppose back then there would have been anything in place for player welfare, really, back in the 60s and 70s. No, no. Jesus, no. I mean, I think some of the things are best 
left unsaid, but uh, <laughs> how you were spoken to and all these type of things. It was all about character building and whether yeah. that was right or whether it was wrong and, you know, the damage that it might have done uh, is is unknown, really. I've seen some things going on in in sort of in developing young football that, you know, really in, in this day and age, it doesn't exist in this day and age anyway. It, mm -hmm. But it was about a lot of what we what we did in Liverpool and I mean it worked for me but I've seen plenty who, who sort of took the knock and um, you know didn't do them any favours really the way that they were they were treated sort of uh, at that time and certainly welfare wasn't on the you know with all due respect uh, I mean unfortunately people aren't with us who who were running it at the time but welfare wasn't it was a case of developing a footballer you mm. know and that's and that's what we all want to be. Yeah. Um, welfare and mental stresses and all those type of things that kind of wasn't wasn't taken into, into consideration. Yeah, and and your time at Liverpool was when Bill Shankly was replaced by Bob Paisley. Did you have sort of any insight into how that that change sort of not came about, but what it was like at the time for somebody like Shankly to? to leave the club because you must have grown up sort of idolising his teams and, and, and the man himself. Oh, he, he was the man without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, Shanks was God and I had a, had a great a couple of years under Shanks. I was in, I was on the ground staff with, or, you know, as an apprentice um, under Shanks and I developed into, I got into the reserve team um, while he was still in charge. Um, but got to know him better after he, re, after he retired. Uh, strangely, he lived in Samfield near Samfield Park, and I lived in Samfield Park, and um, and so I used to bump into him quite on a regular basis. And um, it was sad how it how it happened. I mean, I don't know, I don't know whether or not it's ever really been fully explained how it really came about, and you know some of the some of the things that um, needed to be addressed in that transition. Um, you know, I was there the morning. Bob comes into the dressing room, addressed us all, told us, you know, about he was now the new man, um, the manager, and all this type of thing. And yet, we went once we, we go outside to train, and Shanks was still there, you know, still in his kit, walking around the training ground. And that went on for a few weeks. And um, you know, people were sort of saying, "Well, it's not fair on Bob Paisley, uh, but who's going to tell Bill Shankly that he's not welcome at at Melwood, the place he?" He developed and, um, you know, was, you know, he put all these things in place. And now all of a sudden, he's got to sort of step back and leave it to the, you know, to the new man. And that was, uh, that was very, very strange. And the, the day, you know, people sort of, you know, I was around, I was on the training pitches and stuff like that. Shanks would be mingling with the, with the boys in training. And, um, you know, the, the conversation was almost every day. It was a case of like, He's gonna to have to, you know, he's gonna to have to go, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and it was ultimately it happened. And I don't know whose responsibility it ultimately fell upon, but it was a sad day, a terrible day, because I mean, Shanks, you know, we, you know, anybody that came in contact with Shanks knew how great and and you know what a a magical guy he was. Uh, it, it was it was tough, and 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 probably on reflection, I think if he if he if he looked back, and I think he probably would have done it differently had he, you know. Um, had he had his opportunity to do it again? Yeah, and that's probably where that rumor comes from that he was banned from training. 
that in fact he just was hanging around and it was probably hard for Bob Paisley, wasn't it, to, to be like, I'm gaffer here while you're, you're still around. That must well, have yeah. been a, a tricky situation for everyone. Yeah, I mean, the first team, the, the, the first team were, would be on one pitch doing their stuff. Bob Paisley was generally over there, that side. And then I remember being on the, on the B team pitch one morning in particular, just comes back to mind. And uh, and he just walks up to you, you know, said, how are you doing, son? And all this stuff. So he's walking around the other groups uh, in his kit, like nothing had, nothing had changed. And, um, you know, it was, it was very, uh, very difficult. And, um I mean, in any circumstance, the boss is the boss, and all of a sudden we've got two bosses now, and and sort of in the, sharing the same space. And you ended up making your debut in, uh, I think it was the 75, 76 season, mm-hmm. in the middle of a period where Liverpool had won five league titles, numerous domestic cups, European trophies, considered the best team in the world, or certainly up there for for most of that period. And you've got people like Keegan and Toshak and Highway in training. You come in there as a young lad. Was you starstruck or was you sort of so determined to prove a point that like you had that raw natural mm-hmm. ability to not really care that they were these stars? How did you take that? You know, a lot of a lot of the steps that I, I made it in in football largely just seemed to happen. And I never, you know, I've, I've met many lads down the years are all worrying, you know, where their next contract's coming from. Are they gonna get into the the best, you know, the next team and the advancement. My progression seemed to just move along, and I never, I never kind of, I wasn't certainly thinking of of playing for the first team when I broke into the first team. I was enjoying playing in the reserves. I was doing really well. I was in a great run of form, and um, Stevie Highway went downhill. I think on the um, on the Thursday, and and I got the and I got this the the, the shout and. You know, I, I over kind of leapfrogged a couple of other people who could have quite easily filled in for Stevie Highway had, had the boss sort of wanted to play safe. But uh, he gave me he gave me an opportunity, and I and I came in and um, played as a, as a number nine against Middlesbrough, and it was um, it was a magical experience. I mean, really, um, you can't you can't put into words really um, what what it. You know what you feel in in terms of achieving your ambition, um, and it was maybe a good thing that my first game was away from Anfield and then on Anfield. Maybe the same, yeah. maybe the same pressure didn't exist. You know, I could go out and be a free spirit kind of thing. Um, but then it, it you know it, it develops from from there, and it, and it's not easy not easy sometimes to put into put it succinctly um, because. You know, you get in, and obviously, you look at Keegan, Toshak, and Highway, um, great admirers of all of them. Um, and you get in there, and once you've you've had a game or two, you think to yourself, you know what? You know, I'm I'm kind of I can handle this. This is this is this is all right. And that that feeling of kind of being overawed or thinking that somebody is better than you, you know, seems to disappear. You know, you just want to be, you just want to be in there on your, for your own, for your own reasons. You know, uh, on your own merit. Um, and I wasn't overawed, really. I think um, the way they used to do things at Liverpool, anyway, you, you were in contact with most of the, the the first team through your progression in in different ways, how they based the training, 
which was a good thing, you know, that the young lads trained with the with the reserves and the first team. So it it wasn't strange to be all of a sudden in the in the it was a little bit strange. It wasn't the norm as such, but it wasn't sort of you know a super sort of uh, climb up into sort of all of a sudden now being in their in their space and being you know party to the conversation and all that type of thing. Um, and and people could you know they all had different personalities. Ray Clements, Emma Hughes, Tommy Smith. I mean they were all very they're all very different. Kevin Keegan and and maybe where one or two could sort of maybe put you on your back foot a little bit um, because of their presence. I don't I don't ever feel that I felt overawed really. Once I got onto the pitch, I was you know I, I was I always felt comfortable. Uh, really, I can look back and say I did feel comfortable. I mightn't have been, you know, in all their conversation, you know, with all of them all the time, feeling comfortable talking about the things that they they talked about off the pitch when you're sitting on the bus and all that type of thing. Yeah, because uh, you gradually evolve. You know, you're a young lad. I'm I'm 18 at the time. Ian Callaghan's 34, 35. Tommy Smith's 33, 34. Um, you know, so like a, there's a huge difference in what's going on. But on the football pitch, yeah. I felt. You know, I'm, I quite, you know, I can quite sort of happily say on the football pitch, I, I never felt inferior. I suppose it's a skill in itself, and probably one of the reasons why you made it over other lads who might not have made it, who might have crumbled in in that dressing room, or having that exposure to to those stars. There, there mustn't have been too many defeats during that first period you came into the team. Yeah. So, what was the dressing room like after a defeat with those characters in there? You know what? I, I mean, the games I came in because I, I um, well, I played in my, my debut was a, was a win. The next game I played in was um, I don't think I I didn't play in in my first season. I didn't play the only I didn't play in a defeat. Uh, my, I've never asked that question actually. Yeah. Uh, I, I never played in a defeat. Um, we we wouldn't um, we were there were a couple of games that I took. Featured in, I played a couple of, I made a couple of sub appearances between um, uh, November and and this, you know, through November and December. Then the next time I appeared in the team was something like March time, and from that point on, we went on this incredible run, which ended up was winning. Uh, we ended up winning the league, so um, it was it was a monumental. Um, season to be to be involved in you know my first season now um 18 i was 19 by the end of the season uh won a league championship medal started the uefa cup final um you know it's sort of um you know you just take you begin to take it in your stride you think you know you don't i don't think you think how lucky you are i mean i think i can look back now and 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 you know, maybe let's say think of Steven Gerrard, who, who played all that time at Liverpool and never won a league championship, and and yet in my first season I won a league championship and a UEFA Cup. And you know, you think to yourself, um, it kind of wasn't the norm because the team was evolving. Bob Paisley recreated the team. He wasn't left the team that you know the, the team that he had that won that league and won the and won the UEFA Cup. Bob Paisley put that together. And yeah. um, and so it was, um, you know, it's it, it, it's it's brilliant to think that you you're with a group of people who were um, 
we're all gelling and, and, and it got better and better and from that point on it just got it just got better as far as that group were, were, were concerned you know obviously culminating within well by 80 by 81 we won the European Cup three times uh, so it was kind of uh, an incredible period you know to be to be a part of and what about off the pitch then? So you 18-19, as you just mentioned, when you win your first league championship, mm. you've obviously must have been getting a lot more attention off the pitch as well and still living in the area and probably doing the same things you were doing a few years before. Probably didn't change too much yourself off the pitch, but no. would have been getting a lot more attention. Yeah, well, the first season, I was still going to work on the bus, you know. I was still going, yeah. still going to... I was going past Melwood in the morning on a 12C... And then I was coming back the other way on a coach to, to training. You know, you, you used to get the 12C and the 26 along to Anfield. Um, and I was about, about 19 and I got a car. Um, in the year, yeah, I was about, I was um, in, well into my second season. And maybe it might even be, yeah. And I was 20 probably before I got a car. Um, yeah. So, you know, it was kind of uh, weird. I was, still doing, I was still doing sort of teenage things at Cantrell Farm, you know, sort of standing outside on the, on the corner talking to my mates. And, you know, uh, you know, I wasn't doing, I wasn't, I didn't become a, I didn't become a sort of, you know, night, you know, a kid who wants to be in the nightclub all the time and, all that type of stuff. It was, I was still doing, I was still pretty, you know, boring, feet on the ground kind of thing, really, living in yeah. Campbell Farm. And it was after I had a, had a little um, uh, Escort car, Ford Escort, and um, it was only uh, 700, 700 quid's worth of Ford Escort. Now at 19 and 20, they're driving Range Rovers and all that type yeah. of stuff, you know. Um, so it was all very, uh, you know, it was all gradual. It wasn't until probably 1977 after we won the uh, European Cup in Rome and with my bonuses and stuff, I, I managed to buy a new car then. And, uh, and then I began to feel maybe, you know, it changed a little bit. Life changed yeah. a little bit uh, in 77, at which point I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of 20. So, yeah, it was... Uh, that's brilliant. And you've mentioned there about the, the cup runs, uh, the European Cups, and obviously couldn't speak to you about mentioning that St. Etienne goal. Mm. And that famous commentary, they uh, say the super sub strikes again. Yeah. Did you, did you realise the, the size of that goal when you scored it? And no. to this day, how it's still talked about? No, it's amazing. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, I've, I've, been, I've been out today doing some, some charity stuff that I do. Uh, hardly a day goes by without St. Etienne getting mentioned. It's it's just unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, obviously, they were a huge hurdle to get past uh, to to win the European Cup in '77. And in the in the lead up to, to St. Etienne game, we knew it was going to be a, a really difficult fixture. But um, the way that it all panned out, you could never have written it really you know the drama that was attached to it the game was fantastic it wasn't just about goals anybody if you if you watched you know if anyone get gets a chance to watch the game i mean it was a great game of football 
you know, it ebbed and flowed and got to the point where we're, I mean, we were basically banging on a on a locked door, really. There was no way we were gonna get we were gonna get through. And the atmosphere was just, you know, you had to be there to 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 be it, to to feel it and know what it was really like. And although I scored that goal and, and it was a great moment. Uh, the, the way that's been remembered, you know, you could ne- I could never have imagined it would have been remembered as as vividly and and, and so you know so fondly, really. And Ryan mentioned there that the, the you know the commentator said Super Sub strikes again, and and Super Sub kind of became your nickname, and is and it is still something that people call you t- probably still to this day. And mm. when, when I when your autobiography, I think you called it Super Sub as well, didn't yeah. you? Did you ever feel? Uh, probably at that age that it was ever a bit of a maybe a bit of a backhanded compliment at all that there was I mean you played 100 and, 150 odd games for Liverpool Five games yeah, yeah most, 50, of them was, most of them were starts weren't they as well and the, the majority of them yeah just under just under 100 yeah uh, you know I've got regrets I'll be honest and thought I should have played more I think I was on the bench something like 97 times I think I gather uh, I mean I know sub- substitutes now are on the pitch on the bench. Well, there's far more substitutes now, far more opportunities to be be a substitute. But, you know, to, to be on the bench almost 100 times as well, you know, is kind of, is something I, I never I never thought of for, for many years later. But, um, you know, in, in those days, I mean, we're looking in, in ways because we didn't get the immediate attention that you get now. So you weren't made to feel as if you were like, you know, the greatest things in sliced bread. Um, you could be a hero for a day or two, you know, day after a game. But people who score the goals are going to get the headlines. And that's it. Next week, another game, somebody else gets the headlines. There weren't the TV programmes that were all based around the Premier League and gushing people up and making them feel, you know, as I say, there's something special. So kind of, it was, it was good. And the Super Sub thing came out of one of those headlines, you know, after I scored two against Burnley and um, on the, the next morning, you know, in the, in, the, in the paper, you know, Super Sub strikes. But up to then, it had been like the ginger, you know, Fairclough or the, the red-headed Fairclough, the copper knob Fairclough, everything, everything related to me here. And they were looking for something else and somebody came up with a, with the super so I think it was it was a it was a headline writer in um, I think it was in the Daily Post I think it was might have been the first might have been the first time and and then it's used and then it kind of like happened a few times more um, uh, and then as you say the Saint Etienne night the the commentary it kind of Gerald since that probably put it in concrete so to speak you know. Super sub strikes again, and from that point it came. You know, it did seem to take on a different um, identity. It became much, you know, it was much more sort of attached to me and everything that I did. And um, I had a funny incident about a week or so ago, and um, and I was telling somebody this morning what had happened doing this charity thing. And she, just, when I went back, when I went to this house, this woman said. So they just said to my fella, super subs just been to our house. And you know, I mean that's how that's how people sort of do call me, call me super sub. It's, it's like it's really it, it, it's it's weird. Um, and there's been things written about it down the years. I know it 
people say he hated it, but that was attributed to an article I did some, you know, long time ago, uh, where it was frustrating me at the time. Um, and I sort of, sort of hate the super sub tag. People seem to have kept, you know, remembered that bit. I mean, even like 20, 30 years on, said, oh, you hate the super sub. You know, I only said it in, in one article kind of thing. And um, it, it did sort of, it, it became that kind of thing that people attached to, uh, it to me. Um, so I do didn't... You feel, be, um, do you feel as though it held you back at all? Do you, yeah. you mention there that... That you you had some regrets and what have you. I mean, you were at you were at Liverpool in the first team for just shy of a decade, wasn't it? And I suppose if you would you were, I imagine you would have had approaches for other moves and and what have you. It must have been a difficult decision to to ever to have left Liverpool, given your sort of local attachments to the club. Well, the, the um, uh, in those days it wasn't easy to leave. Uh, I mean, not like now. You know, you can't turn around and say, "Well, if I'm not playing, I'm off," and and you you you've got some bargaining power. In those days, you didn't. If you say, "Well, I'm off. I'm not happy. Whatever, whatever," and the managers say, "Well, you can go and play in the reserves, and that's it." And you know, you you'll go when when we say kind of thing. So for a while, you know, for a couple of years, I was quite happy to be that sort of young lad coming off the bench, getting me a little bit of. You know, a little bit of time, um, and then in '77, um, after being left out the cup final team, um, which was a you know a, quite a sad sort of memory. Um, uh, my dad said at the time, said that you know it was unfair. We felt it was unfair at the time, um, but Paisley later on actually, you know, he did say himself he probably should have had me included, even though you know. It's kind of a tale. It's in the book, but the full tale. But it was very emotional. And at that point, my dad said, you know, I think you're always going to get the wrong end of the stick. And um, and he said, I think you should probably think maybe, you know, you might maybe move on kind of thing if the, if the opportunity uh, happens. Fortunately, my dad passed away within weeks of saying that. And, um, and that then became a little bit of a problem for me because, you know, my mum was still young, um, my dad had died very, very suddenly. Um, and you, I couldn't just up and go then at that point. You know, even if, you know, even if Liverpool would have let me go, it would have been very difficult to leave, you know, my mother in a, in a terraced, you know, terraced house in Cantrell Farm. So personal circumstances sort of kept me there for a little while. And then, you know, there the were offers, things came in. Pompey would say, I don't want you to go. I want you to stay. And even though perhaps... I wasn't happy being just on the fringe and in and around and, and doing that role. Um, they turned down a few offers for me. You know, Aston Villa, I know, came in. Anderlecht from Belgium one time came in. City sniffed around. Everton sniffed around. Uh, I was made aware of a number of, of, of teams uh, showing interest. Um, Brighton. Um, there were quite there were a number at different times. Uh, they didn't want me to go, which was a, a which was a compliment in in many ways. Um, but then and then I got injured. Then I got injured, um, and and that really threw me back a little bit. That that knocked me back. That dragged on for a couple of well season and a half really. And in in in, in that time, they the, the decision was you know was put to me that maybe I might benefit from rather than having a 
three, two or three months, two couple of months off in the summer, like most of the lads would be having, was go and play in, in, in somewhere like the NASL and, and have a re, you know, a rehab kind of thing. And, and that sounded like a good idea. So off I went to Canada. I had a summer playing in um, Toronto. And then when I was coming, when that all that was coming to an end and I, was, I had the opportunity to come back, I realised Liverpool were prepared to let me go. And, and, and that, that kind of, you know, the, the follow-on was came back to Liverpool one more year and then I, and then I ultimately left. But they, that was the first time that Liverpool really showed a sign that they were prepared to, uh, to, to let me go. Um, and and once, once you feel as if you're not really wanted, then, you know, I think then you think, yeah, maybe it's in, it's in everybody's interests kind of thing. There's no point in, you know, you, you could do, you could, you could beat away as a closed door kind of thing, but instead you think, oh, no, it's, it's going to be too, this is going to be a little bit difficult in a, in a, in a sort of a, a mental way, you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. going to drive me, it's going to drive me mad, sort of, am I in, am I not, I'm not playing and all that type of stuff. I thought the time was right to go and it was good and it was, and it was probably, uh, it probably was the right time. Yeah, I think it was, so 1983, you left Liverpool eventually. And as you mentioned at the at the top, David, you played abroad quite a few yeah. times, which is, which is, I suppose, in the, the, the area that you played in, fairly rare. And uh, you played, um, as you mentioned, then in Toronto, as well as Switzerland and, and Belgium. What was it like playing abroad? Was it a culture shock at all? Or was it something that you enjoyed because you kind of, you know, you've been in Liverpool for your whole life and then you had this opportunity to go mm-hmm. and play elsewhere? I went to Toronto for that summer, knowing that basically it was only a short period. That was the understanding that I I had. And I got over there. That was that was uh, that was great. Got off to a good start, and then within a couple of weeks, like you found that the pressure was on, and, and all of a sudden I was being highlighted as you know there was some things because I played for Liverpool. I'd, I'd come here from Liverpool, or you know, come to Toronto from Liverpool. I should have been much greater than everybody else and greater things were expected of me. And I suddenly found that little bit of pressure and um, I probably wasn't at that point really ready for it. It kind of took me by surprise a little bit. Um, But it was a great learning curve because I came out of it. I had a couple of weeks where it did sort of affect me slightly. Um, And obviously I, I thought, Maybe there was a bit, um, from my point of view, I probably thought, you know, I've come from Liverpool, I'm only playing here in Toronto and all that. Well, I should be playing anyway. You know, it was, I wonder whether or not I did drop my level, maybe a touch. I don't know. Um, but, but certainly it, it, it kind of became a wake-up, a bit of a wake-up call. And, and, and I found that, that uh, you know, just because you were maybe, you know, David Fairclough, you know, from Liverpool, you deserved anything different. You know, you had to take thing that, okay, you've got this little bit of a, a pedigree now. You've come from Liverpool. People do expect, and there and there's a level that people expect of you. And and whether or not you think you're just maybe just an ordinary one of a bunch, you kind of probably got to realise I might have been paid a little bit more money than one or two others and you know expectations are higher and you've got to that 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 that's a sort of then you've got to pick up on that i think and 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 really uh, and try and deliver you know sort of prove you prove that sort of thing that maybe it isn't the fact that you were at liverpool people saying around say say what 
people think shows why you're at Liverpool. And that's, yeah. You know, it's like that pressure to 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 have to prove yourself, isn't it? When you're when you're arriving somewhere new, after your um, stint in Lausanne, you 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 moved to um, a few different clubs over a sort of a short period of time. Do you think that that sort of couple of years that you had away, maybe because you were out of the the spotlight in England, do you think that had any impact on maybe getting moves or getting in the team, or was that injury still playing a a, a factor in the in the next few seasons? Strange the leaving of Lucerne um, because things had been going okay, and then it began to go a little bit wrong. I'd a, I'd a, I'd been um, suspended. I got sent off, lost my place for a few couple of for a few weeks, and then I couldn't get back into the team. And during that period, I got a little bit upset. I got a little bit disgruntled. Well, I was kind. I was tapped up um, by Southampton actually. Uh, I got a phone call from Southampton. John Mortimer was the um, was the manager there at the time, and he said, uh, "Would you fancy coming to Southampton?" Kind of thing. And because I was like in a in a little, I was in the doldrums over a couple of weeks, and you get these things. But being away from home and all that, and he mentioned to my wife, you know, so that, that was Southampton on the phone. Um, and he's thinking, mm, shall we go back or whatever? He thought, mm, Southampton live and blah, blah, blah. Uh, next thing, somebody else is on because I've shown an interest. Uh, I'd give a kind of thing to Southampton. Yeah, might be interested kind of thing. Where travels fast. Next team's coming on. Um, and my wife's thinking, you know, it might be a good thing to, to go back to England. You know, I mean, we don't live here. Didn't fully maybe appreciate what we had in, Luc- in Lucerne. And it got all a little bit messy. And um, and, and to be honest, and I've said this before, I think the, the, the one mistake in life was leaving Lucerne when I did. Um, I picked up a little, strangely, I picked up, I was training with Everton through the, through the Christmas period that I was home. And um, Howard Kennell was the manager. And um, I picked up this little injury and it didn't do me any favours. And, and Looking back on it now, I should have gone back to Lucerne at the end of that sort of like three or four week break that we had. And then I should have tried to deal with this injury, but I wrote this injury off. I thought it was just a little tiny niggle and it turned into be, it turned out to be something bigger than what initially I, I thought. I thought it was just, a, to be honest with you, I thought it was a stone in my shoe. That's how simplistic. It, that, that's how simplistic it was. Ten- I, I, I'd imagine at that time, David, was dealing with injuries particularly difficult. You know, with the, the yeah. facilities and the treatments, and not not like what they are today. And I would imagine being away from the, the the first team, and and also you were away from home as well. Maybe that made it was. Mm. I presume that was probably quite difficult to to, to deal with. Well, I was stay, staying with my mum in in West Derby, but I thought I just had this little niggle on my foot. And uh, it turned into be, it turned into be, uh, it turned into being, um, it was a, a ligament that I'd done, and and it happened so so innocently, it was unbelievable. Um, literally walking down the street, and I just tried to, you know, being in that age at the time, you know, that 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 era, injuries weren't treated in that, you know, in a, in a really in a sophisticated way, and. Um, uh, and I'd been brought up to like 
just get on with it, you know. You'd had, I'd had injuries and I'd had worse feelings than this um, injury in my foot. And it was just one of that. That, that was just a time that, that we were in. You just played, you played on with things. And, you know, if I'd have known sort of, if I'd have known six months later, you know, it would have, you know, it, it could have all been different. But anyway, in that time, it became very untidy. Everton asked to, asked to sign me, um, which could have turned into a big disaster because I probably had I got in there and they'd have found that I was in, I was injured. Ultimately, between I had a um, I played a little had a little spell at Norwich, um, and there was an interesting story how I ended up in Norwich, but um, ended up in Norwich, and they got relegated and um, through the, on the terms of the. Um, on the terms of the uh, the the basic the basic negotiation was that if they if they um, they would pay you know the, a certain transfer fee at the end, but they got relegated, so you know they made a financial decision that they couldn't afford to to sign me. I was then left in limbo, uh, no club at that point, um, so. I had a, and then I had, a, I had to have an operation on the injury that I had. Turned out it was up, you know, needed needed operating on. Um, all got really messy, really untidy, and um, and that was my own. I wasn't I was unattached to a club, so I had to sort it out myself. Uh, you know, I had to find a surgeon. Ultimately, I found went to Liverpool, uh, the surgeon that LFC used, and we sorted the injury out. Got myself fit again. And I signed for Oldham. Had a season at Oldham. Scored two against Liverpool in their double, double season, 85-86, which is probably the highlight of, of all that messy stuff. It was, um, uh, it, it, it was, it was a big memory to, to play against Liverpool in the League Cup. And in those days, they played the full team. You know, I was only looking at a picture a couple of weeks ago. Me scoring the second goal, you know, surrounded by Lawrence and Grobelar and, uh, and Alan Hansen. Uh, and that, that was great to score two against Liverpool. Play at Anfield for only for fifteen minutes, but for Oldham uh, was 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 uh, was memorable. Um, but Oldham wasn't for me. I realised, you know, um, there was there was no point in. I didn't want to be back in the in the in the English second division. Uh, I felt I was better than that anyway. And um, I got this break to go to Belgium, which. Um, which I, you know, was really, really enjoyable and uh, had a good time. Yeah, you were there for a good few years in Belgium, weren't you? There, um, about three seasons there or thereabouts. Three yeah, three seasons. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I guess maybe the, the, you know, the positive time you'd had in Switzerland informed that you felt as though you'd be comfortable going abroad again. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the experience I, I knew, obviously, I picked up some language, uh, which gave me more confidence. Um, my wife was more comfortable with Europe now. First time going away, she felt, you know, the 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 normal things, you know, missing a mom, missing a sister, all those things. Um, by the time we went to Belgium, she was she was she was excited about going back to live in Europe, and and we were expecting a baby as well, and and that was an interesting period because I had a number of offers throughout that summer, and it was it was a case of. You know, where where did she want to have a baby born? Um, and we went to Belgium, and I'm part of, as part of the 
of the introduction to, to when we went over there and had a chat, uh, they showed, you know, hospitals, all this kind of thing. It was kind of like a really, it was, it was a very, very nice family club to, um, to go to in, in, a, in also a nice, nice part of the world. So that, that was good. You know, I had a, I had a, we had a great first season. I had a, I had a successful first season. Ajax um, uh, made an approach for me um, on the basis of my first year. Johan Cruyff was the coach at, at uh, Ajax at that point. Uh, and that was very flattering. Uh, and that, that my club didn't let me, wouldn't let me go was, was also was a nice kind of thing to, uh, to, to, to have, you know, in, in, in me sort of in conscience, you know, it just gave me a greater feeling of mm. sort of comfort there. And then after your, your, your periods um, abroad, you, you, you come back, you come back to Merseyside and end up at, at Tramia. Which is as Ryan said at the at the start is is our club. How did how did you um I mean the the, the move from uh, from Beverin to to Tramir, you must be the only person who's ever made that move, I'd imagine. <laughs> Although to given Ryan has quite an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, lower league footballs, particularly Tramir players, so he's probably gonna reel off about three players we've signed <laughs> from uh, from Beverin before he's shaking his head. <laughs> um but yeah, no, so how did that move come about? Well, in one way, I thought it was necessary for me to leave Beveren because there was a young, uh, there was a young lad emerging, um, a Dutch guy who they were really, they really liked, and I was, and I was getting a little bit of, I was in and out, and we'd had a reasonable team, and there was a little bit of a switch over, and I thought, well, you know, okay, might be, might be uh, all right to, to, to consider moving. They, 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 they'd expressed an interest to sell me into France. And they'd had an offer from uh, Bastia in France. I didn't want to go to Bastia. And two or three other teams came in to me, in, in for me in France. And um, two, um, two wanted me for, um, to pay a fee. And one wanted me uh, for, for, for free. And I wanted the one, the club that was wanted me for nothing was the one I really wanted to wanted to go to uh, or I, I fancied in Brittany I mean that, that, that they wouldn't allow that to, to happen um, there was a club in Belgium that came in um, and I went I went and saw them and, and spoke to them but I thought well if I'm leaving you know if I can't go where I want and want to go um, then maybe um, should go back to England and why thought you know I was thinking extending the family, you know, having another baby as well and all this type of stuff. It was very difficult to get back to England. And um, as I say, they wanted to sell me Beveren, but the PFA got the PFA involved and the PFA negotiated me a, a, a way out of Belgium uh, on, a, on a technicality, which was, um, again, you know, a bit sad in a way because I enjoyed living on the continent. But, you know, obviously... You want to be playing football and, and, and getting the best, um, you know, opportunities. Um, but um, a friend of mine knew uh, Peter Johnson very well, and um, and Peter was a big Liverpool fan, and um, it was kind of got, it got put to him that I was available, so he kind of gifted me upon Johnny King, and. Um, Johnny King was very close to all his boys, you know. He had a he had a great team in there, and 
you know, of all the years I played in football, I don't think I played with a, a more amusing, happier bunch of lads. It was it was an unbelievable crowd of players. It was like it was like going back to a bit like going back to Sunday league days, but you know, obviously in in a different sort of yeah in a different setting. The the atmosphere was brilliant. You know, it was never you know never a, a sort of quiet moment. Just fun and jokes and laughter and all that type of thing. It was. It was weird and weird and wonderful. We um, we spoke to uh, to Pat Nevin on an episode a few months back, and and he was obviously there not 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 an enormous amount of time after your period mm-hmm. at, at Tramir, and he he said a very similar thing really about when he was making up his decision of where he was going to make his move to and why he decided to go to Tramir, and a lot of it was around that that it seemed like an enjoyable place where the the, the football that the, the club was trying to play and that Johnny King was trying to play was was fun and entertaining and enjoyable and that was kind of the environment and the atmosphere that was that was being created at that time sort yeah. of moving moving later on sort of after your career i was reading that in 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 2010 about 10 years ago you had a you had a, a heart attack that must have been that must have been quite a, a traumatic experience for you <laughs> well when i was on the floor <laughs> um yeah i was um I was doing keep fit and um, I was doing body combat training and um, and I got this pain in my chest, which at the time I thought it, it was down to one of the exercises that I'd done and um, that I'd been doing. Um, I, I, reluctantly, I, I, carry, I tried to keep going. And in the end, I had to pack in uh, at the end of the session. I used to train about two hours on a Friday. It was only about 10 or 15 minutes from the end of this two-hour stint. And um, I felt a bit guilty packing up on, you know, coming out of the class with about 10 or 15 minutes to go. And um, I got in my car and I drove home. I'm only a few minutes from the gym anyway. Shouldn't have done that. You know, I I gather now. Um, But as soon as I got out and stopped the car, I got hit with this, like, huge sort of, a you know, I can only, like like a great pressure and, pain in my chest um yeah very mysteriously and the next thing I'm, I'm on the i was on the floor uh having a heart attack uh, which i said to my wife i said you know i managed to call my wife and she wasn't here my phone went i made my way to the phone get on the phone and say i'm not well whatever whatever she arrived back here and um she said straight away you're having a heart attack i said i'm not having a heart attack but it was, I was, I was, having, I was having a heart attack, which uh, quite scary in the end. Yeah, quite, quite scary. You don't realise sort of. My dad died at 50 and um, I was 52, um, uh, 52, 53. And um, you, you kind of think, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you don't expect your parents to die at the age of 50. And I was thinking, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I almost went at the same the same time kind of thing, you know. It must have been the football Liverpool were playing at the time because they were they were playing awful. And the following day, they got beat by Blackpool at Anfield. So um, I remember that game. That was yeah. that, that was that was a weird, yeah, that was a weird period of of time. Yeah. That wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I was lying. I was lying in. I was lying in Southport Hospital last Saturday afternoon, uh, sort of getting over my heart attack. So uh, that's how I remember it. October the first, it was. 
Don't hear me. And you you spoke about your wife there, David, and and not an enormous amount of time after that, she she died quite suddenly. Yeah, I'd imagine, particularly coming on the back of of the heart attack, that must have been a an incredibly difficult time for for both you and for your family as well. And would you kind of mind talking us through that that sort of period of your life? Yeah, I mean that's that's um, that's that's really it's really hard to. Um, really hard to talk about because um my wife's thinking about me getting over my heart attack you know um that happened let's say in october so through christmas and, and one thing or another we went on a break um february time march um and, and she was only concerned about me you know you'd never think that you know what something's around the corner the way it is and um unfortunately she she had a uh, a massive brain hemorrhage um uh in the beginning of april um so you know six months you know six months after me having a heart attack and we're sort of all concerned about making a steady thing making a few plans to say well okay obviously that's a sign take it easy now you know, let's let's alter what we're going to do. You know, what our plan is now. A uh, couple of other things, put put different things as our priorities, and um, and incredibly, she she uh, yeah, she kind of dropped dead. You know, like like you know, it's like Sleeping Beauty. It was just she was just like she she looked like she was fast asleep, and it was very traumatic. Yeah, very traumatic. And, and I think for two years after, um, for two years after, I, 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 I have no memory of really of, um, of much. You know, I know things happened, but nothing kind of stands out. And, you know, it was just kind of, we fumbled through, you know. I think my daughter, my daughter at that point was living with a boyfriend, uh, and my son was living away from home. I was here very much on my own. Um, it was very tough, very, very tough. I had two great mates that, that kind of helped me pull through, but one of them was suffering with cancer at the time. Uh, my best mate, um, he was suffering with cancer, um, esophagus cancer. Um, two years, uh, 2014, he died and then uh, and then, uh, so was it 2013? 2013, and then 2015, my other great mate died. Uh, it was unbelievable. I was, just couldn't, you know, you couldn't have, I couldn't have made it up, really. I just, closest people to me, with the exception of my, you know, blood relations, uh, just gone. It was, uh, it, it was very hard. And, and, and sometimes, and that's why, and, and I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say this, but, I find it very hard to be too sympathetic, you know, I, f- I felt, you know, it, it, you know, to feel always sympathy and shock, you know, at other things, you know, I don't, that, that sounds horrible, I know, um, but I just, you know, just felt that, you know, obviously losing Jan the way we did, um, and then, you know, two, mate, two best mates passing away, it was kind of like, uh, you know, just... I don't know. Just felt like too much. Yeah. Really. Um, Did you ever feel 
I mean, one of the things we talk about on on this podcast quite regularly, David. I mean, uh, grief and 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 dealing with death and stuff is a it's obviously a big factor when we talk about mental health and talk about well being and and I suppose we often see men not being particularly good at dealing with grief. How did how did you kind of find the you maybe your ability to to you know you said you had your, your mates there to, to, to start up after jan died and mm-hmm. how did you kind of find being able to open up and talk was that something that was quite difficult yeah because you know i cry even when i think of jan now even even now it, it, it's not it's never gone away so it is difficult and, and I don't know what you put it down to. Um, you kind of, um, obviously you have to, I don't know, reinvent yourself is maybe a way I'd put it uh, and, and sort of find a way to, a way to, um, to get on with life, but you know, um, and not, not kind of feel sorry for yourself and and that type of thing where you can feel sorry for yourself you know why me you know i mean i've got a i've got a son and a daughter my daughter lives her life she's a half glass half full girl and my son's a bit of a a glass half empty type of lad you know he feels you know why did i lose my mum and my daughter thinks how blessed she was to have had such a a mother like she had who was um you know, really well loved uh, kind of thing. So you've got to, you know, you've got to obviously, you've got to, um, you've got to move on because that's the way you kind of, um, you know, each other would 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 sort of want that for, you know, for the other. So uh, you have to move on. And obviously there are great things to look ahead to, you know, obviously the kids were young-ish, and still had, you know, um, exciting things to to go on to, you know. And, um, and thankfully, they, they've got, they have gone on to do some good things. And, you know, I've got like a little tribe of grandchildren now. And um, and that's all. But you they, uh, they, they keep you busy. Yeah, well, luckily, you know, well, luckily, um, two of them are still babies. Um, I've got a little, little grandson. Um uh, and it's tricky, you know. Grief is grief is a terrible thing, and uh, I don't fully understand it myself, um, in a way, because, and I wouldn't wish to give advice to anybody, um, only to say that um, it's it's different for everybody. You know, me losing my wife, you know, my mate losing his wife, or, or whatever. There's no way to say it. anything I'm going to say is not going to make a great deal of difference. I don't think you've got to find your own way to handle it. That's that's how I've I have. That's not that's not advice. That's just how I've done it because you know what my wife meant to me doesn't necessarily you know. I remember fella laughed. You know, uh, fella made me laugh. I went to see him, and he was waiting for. He was saying about he had a client going to come in. And he said, I'd heard that she'd lost her husband. And um, I was thinking, oh, God, what am I going to say? And all this type of thing. And I hadn't, he said, I hadn't sent her a card and this type of thing. He said, so she came in. He just said, oh, yeah, like, look, I'm very, very sorry about, you know, losing your husband and blah, 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 blah. And he said, don't be. He said he was a 
he was a B and I'm going to live and all this kind of thing. So, I mean, it kind of made me, you know, Caden kind of made me smile in a way. I don't know whether that's what that has to do really with my thing, but I just thought not everybody's grief is the same. You know, some people are happy to, I don't know, to see some people go and all that type of thing. And the levels of your relationships are all, all different, aren't they? You know, some cope. I found it, I found it quite difficult to cope. Um, I, I've become fiercely, I've become much more independent. And I think one, one thing I've, I've learned is my mother was widowed young and she never married again. And, and when I think of um, kind of role models, you know, my mother's been a, an incredible kind of role model because she doesn't, she doesn't moan or groan and she just gets on with it. And she should have been very, very independent and stoic and um, all those things. And, and I think that kind of, kind of sort of has affected me really. It's kind of made me just book up and just sort of think, well, you got to look after yourself now. And, uh, you know, that type of thing, you know, that type of thing. I don't, I don't, know, I don't think that kind of explains it at all. But. No, I think you've... Um... I think you've articulated it really clearly. I think it's, it, as you say, David, it's, it, you know, loss and grief and relationships are very personal, aren't they? And it's, it's mm -hmm. as you say, one, the way that it affects one person won't be the same as with somebody else. And, and like you say, it's, it's, it's how you find the way of getting through it that matters really, I suppose, isn't it? And, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's no, not a one size fits all thing, I guess it's, it's, it's finding what, what, what can work for you and, 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 and you know, coping with it the best you can yeah and i think you know i've, I've had you know number of, you know plenty of knocks you know be through football um employee you know in jobs after football um you know losing jam and these type of things you know a little bit of you know bit of disaster with health um but at the end of the day you've got to do it for yourself you know what I mean? And, and whether or not, you know, people sort of sometimes feel as if, well, feeling sorry for yourself doesn't gonna, isn't, isn't going to get you out of anything, isn't going to get you through. You know, you've got to get up and go and do it. Uh, and I said, that's, that's the lesson I think probably my mother's never preached that in any way. But I just look at my mother and, you know, and that gives me the, you know, the way through it. Uh, if that sort of yeah that makes sense it makes a lot of sense david um thank you for for, for sharing that with us I, I i appreciate it it's you know it clearly it's very difficult for you to talk about but we, you know as we you know we said at the top that the whole sort of sort of direction that we want to take with this podcast is to allow people to have the space to talk about those type of difficult subjects so we mm -hmm. no i really appreciate your 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 opening up about that david because it was clearly very obviously emotional for you still sort of to to wrap us up then we when I, when I spoke to you on the phone we were having a bit of a chat about you know lockdown football and and how it was a little bit different now and you know without crowds and I suppose then the last 12 months have been kind of quite strange for a lot of people and have been very weird and wonderful and there's been ups and downs along the way and how have you kind of found the last year or so? Uh, the first part of the lockdown I um I coped well. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a, I've, you know, I've got a nice home. Um, I've got a front garden, back garden, very private. Um, it was, it was, it was fine. You know, it was, um, 
the weather was good, wasn't it, initially? Um, so I think that was a blessing for the government, I think. Otherwise, people would have been bloody doing all kinds of bloody stupid things. Uh, but instead, uh, it, that was good and that was okay. And then I picked up the virus. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it's it brought me a bit of, it's brought me some illnesses afterwards. I ended up spending about, about five weeks in, in bed, you know, with, um, with COVID, picked up a couple of other infections afterwards. Um, so it's all been a bit, that was, that's been a bit difficult. And when I look, I try and look back and think, forget about that. It's gone now. You know, it was very desperate. It's left me with a little bit of something that I didn't want, but, um, that's another, that's for another day. Um, but, um, most of the time I've, I've been, you know, um, I say I count myself lucky where I'm, I'm living where I live. And, uh, you know, that, that's kept me kind of sane. Um, yeah. I suspect, I suspect you're probably just wishing you can get back on the golf course. Yeah, I live too close to the golf course to uh, sort of to forget about golf. I have to. I walk. I walk past the golf course pretty much every day. Um, so um, and that's that's good. I mean, early part of the early part of the lockdown, you know, uh, for whatever reason, most of the Liverpool team live. You know, sort of at least half of them live around me. You know, and I was talking to, you know, been talking to people like. Jurgen Klopp, Steven Gerrard, you know, see that you know, seen the footballers, you know, that they're handful of the, the current teams living within sort of probably a, a pitching wedge of where I am. Uh, so, so that that was good, you know. Being speak, speaking to Jurgen on a regular basis was uh, like, how lucky am I? You know, it was, uh, that was uh, that was that was brilliant. Um, I've been involved in in, a, in a, a business that I've been kind of largely responsible for building about three years ago, and we've been able to do you know been able to do some things on um, continue things a lot of on a lot of online stuff like everybody else. Um, so you know I, I don't feel I don't feel um, I don't feel unfortunate in that sense. Um, obviously, I miss the. Uh, the opportunity to go to Anfield on a regular basis and do what we would do, what we do for Liverpool, meet meet the people in lounges and all that type of thing. And we meet up, the lads obviously meet up as well throughout the afternoon, so we have a bit of banter and have a bit of a laugh. And that's our, you know, that's a lot of the lads' social life, really. You know, and that's speaking to a couple of them on various phone calls and things. I think they missed it because that that was the thing that we all look forward to. Maybe have you know. Glad to have a glass of wine and and all have a bit of a laugh and that was part of the social life. So that's a bit. Um, that's been a that's been a miss. I think that's a really good point. Ryan and I have spoken a few times on on and off the podcast about you know for for a lot of people going the matches their their main source of kind of socialising, yeah. isn't it, and seeing friends yeah. and loved ones, and it's kind of been taken away for a lot of people. And and I guess you know with the announcement really that the potentially people might be back in stadiums for the end of the season. It's, it, you know, it's something for people to look forward to, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to Peter Moore in, early in the uh, uh, mid-summer and, uh, I mean, they had, their, they had their thoughts on when perhaps they would get the fans back into Anfield. Uh, his version, um, 
was very optimistic, although I could see reasons why they probably be, had been told something that, you know, they felt was on the cards turned out to be to be wrong. Whereas, you know, you know, it sounds like name dropping, but uh, you know, speaking to Jurgen and you know, and, and he just said, "There'll be nobody in Manfield." He said, well, "We'll have nobody in Anfield before New Year," and and he was saying this back in you know July time. You know, there was so that 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 turned out to be more 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 than true, didn't it? Really, uh, well, more on the right lines. Um, so so the. Uh, the, the, the football thing has been a big loss for people. I wonder how much it's damaged as well. Maybe the as it damaged the the brand as such. You know, if that's the wrong way of putting it, maybe. But you know, obviously the results haven't gone the way that we wanted, and you know, we've been away so long now. People still got the the real affinity with and the passion that that was existed when we were chasing the championship and stuff. It's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's been unfortunate how, you know, Liverpool have had such a bad year this year, going back to, you know, um, to, to having people in stadiums and all that type of thing. It'll be, it'll be um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, how, how it's affected some people, you know, because walking and all these different things, people have found, I think people have found some ex, some other pastimes now. That they, mm. You know that they might fully have appreciated before uh, before the footy. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it it's it is interesting that you mentioned that day because Ryan and I were literally having this conversation the other day with with the other lad Andrew who does this podcast with us because I was saying I've not I haven't watched the, any of the the, the Stranmere games on the you know on the stream no. since since last year and I just I've kind of just it, you know I, I live almost pretty much over the road from from Prenton Park so mm-hmm. I walk past the ground every time I get go and get the bus to work so I feel like I was it's 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 it, it, I'm getting a bit of a mugging off every time I walk to work because I really want to go to a match mm-hmm. and really want to you know go and see me mates and have a drink and enjoy it and whatever and I can't and it's kind of put me off watching it to be honest with you but it's mm-hmm. um yeah I, I think that there's probably an element of that that's true that maybe people have kind of the relationship might have changed with it a little bit yeah, I've got a couple of mates who 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 spent a lot of money on hospitality down the years and stuff, and we've had a couple of conversations on the phone, and they're they're, they're frust- you know not frustrated. They, they said, you know what, I just want my money back now. All the money I've spent on the uh, you know, and they're rolling over contracts Liverpool to you know following year and stuff. Uh, they're saying like, I don't know whether I really want to sort of be spending sort of like. You know, over twenty thousand pound on season tickets and uh, and all that type of stuff. It's kind of uh, it is mad when you think about it because you know it's kind of uh, you know clubs certainly can't take the fans for granted. And, no, and, that's and so fo- true. Football with it, football without fans is nothing. It, it really isn't nothing. Um, you know, obviously they tried to put a, a bit of a gloss on it and say, well, we started off playing football without fans and one thing that, but once you've had fans in a once you've developed and gone that to that level, for footballers now playing in empty stadiums, it's not easy. I don't think it's easy at all. I don't think it's easy. Not to have any have any sympathy with them, but it's not easy. And it, and it certainly it shows that the foot you know football with fans is is um, well. It, it certainly enhances the it, it enhances the um, the occasion. 
some players find it difficult to play with fans there. So, so some players have benefited from having yeah. nobody there because they, they don't have that nerve kind of uh, aspect to their performance. Yeah. Any, um, anyone in a West anyone in a West Ham shirt would probably yeah probably yeah <laughs> probably yeah. agree with that, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a couple of teams that try to rather play in uh, behind closed doors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah West Ham. Still got Ryan. I've still got Ant in the studio, lads. Obviously, listening back to that interview and. You know, we we Ryan and you and I were were on the interview that evening. And listening back for you, what were your thoughts? What were your kind of takeaways from from David's interview? I I like the um, the passion he had to play for Liverpool. I thought that was really good. I, I think there's a bit where he mentions about, um, obviously he was questioning because you asked him about the super sub sort of stuff yeah. and whether he needed to move on and whether it was like a backhand the compliments. And I think he he realised how important it was to be around that area. Mm. Uh, it was like family he, links, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. For his mom, his, his dad had just passed away. It gives a little bit of an idea as to the stuff that might be going on yeah. outside of a player's career mm. that you can sometimes hear people say, you know, is there a lack of ambition? You know, yeah. that type of thing. You hear that a lot, and maybe less in that era, but more now. And it gives you an idea as to what may be meaning that players stay at clubs for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously he's saying, oh, my mum still lives in a council house. And yeah. And you're thinking, that's not what the football I know at the moment. I know, I know. Well, I, I imagine there's still some examples of that, but it, at that it's level, not, it's European not, yeah, Cup winner, absolutely, it doesn't really. Um, it's not really the same at the, at this moment nope. in time, is it? But yeah, it was just it was nice to hear someone be quite that passionate about where they were from, yeah, massively, and, and 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 playing for a team that they loved, and it was quite interesting. I mean, obviously, he was a support of the team as well, so it's a, I mean. At that time, even if he was a super solvent, there wasn't. I think there was only one substitution in a game, was there? Uh, yes, there was. Yeah, possibly managed to get to two at some point. And to be the twelfth man in a team of a Liverpool legends, basically, yeah. and then be the local lad who gets to do that. Yeah, it's kind of a bit Royal Rovers. It stuff, is a bit, yeah, it? massively. It's, um, I mean. I won't think he considers himself lucky. He considers himself deserving to be there. And you look oh, at massively, the, yeah. Look at the goals he scored as well. Absolutely. But, yeah, it was just fantastic to hear. Um, and there's so many examples throughout it. I mean, up and down the country mm-hmm. of things like that at that time in particular. It's 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 great to hear of, of someone talking about football from that era because we do often hear of it sort of eulogised to a degree and it, it feels like a bit of a foreign land to us as, you know, younger people who weren't alive at the time and not really having a sort of in-person grasp of what it, you know the time must have been like for us so for, for people sorry then for us to kind of understand so to hear it first hand from David you know the type of things that were going on behind the scenes in the dressing room that the things that were going on as a player and and, and and as a kid growing up and stuff and that it, it's just really good to get that kind of insight into it and just see how different football is then to now and the, the biggest thing I took away from that was and, and, and Ryan you were on that interview with, with me that yeah. night and you will you know when David gets to the part of the interview where he's talking about his wife dying, yeah, and you'll—I'm sure—I'm sure, I'm sure you'll agree with this. When we were on that interview, that he both of us spoke after the interview had finished about how emotionally affecting that was for us to be yeah. a part of, and for someone like David, who, you know, his the era that he grew up in, and he talked about the upbringing that he got from his mum to have been in grown up and being that type of man, and the type of people that we talk about on this podcast as the type of generation that that needs. That yeah. helped to open up. I thought it was amazing from David to, to be that yeah. open with us. We'd never met him before, and and I'm sure he won't be, you know, he, he won't be embarrassed for us to say that he was he was genuinely in tears when we were speaking to him, and, and yeah. it just showed the raw emotion that he still feels. 
yeah, it was it was hard to hard to witness it in a way because you bring someone on and they know ninety percent of the call is going to be about football, the career questions have answered before, stories have been through. Um, super sub he probably get gets reminded of it every week when he's in the street. Yeah, it's the five or ten percent that you talk about where you've just touched on there losing his wife, things like that that aren't the questions he probably gets asked and you have to say to yourself should they be the questions he needs yeah. to be getting asked it was um, incredibly honest for him to, to sort of lay it on the line in the way he did and I think it's quite an important message because there's a lot of fellas there who are sort of 60, 70 we've all got like dads and uncles who might be in and around that sort of age category who might lose a wife or might have tragedy in their life yeah. and they don't know how to deal with it or handle it. And I think our generation is slowly coming to terms with communicating more, talking more, being open, going to a therapist, seeking out help. But we've got to remember those people who brought us up, our dads, granddads, whoever it may be, didn't have that, no. still don't, and are still living in the same households as us, not having the luxury that we have to have a society that's now as open as it is. Huge. And for me, it was... It was a difficult listen, but for the right reasons, if that makes sense. No, because makes there, was a, sense. there was a fella there who was just laying it on the line. and It was very most, human, wasn't it? It? Was, it was very human, yeah. And he, it was like a, some people seem to just be lucky in life. And with David, as much as he's had a great life as a footballer, he's been very unlucky in other circumstances. Mm-hmm. One thing's led to another and things out the blue that you can't prepare yourself for. And I just thought, you know what, there's, there's just someone who's been through an awful lot. Yeah. It's not David Fairclough, the football, it's David Fairclough, the human. Yeah, and I think that's, as much as anything else, what we've always tried to to take away from these interviews, always tried to demonstrate when we speak to footballers, is they are human beings, they are people, and they will go through these difficulties that we all go through. And, you know, for someone like him to, to, to come on a podcast like ours, you know, having never met us before and... To, to, to talk that openly and, and layers of vulnerabilities on the line is incredibly important, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. You're saying it. You know, it's difficult for footballers today to be to be seen as human and, and seen in that way. There's a really funny bit where he's saying, "I used to get the bus to to Anfield." And I mean, I'm not being. I would never see a football on the bus now. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. And I think he made a, a good point about, you know, there wasn't as much. Um, news or anything and we've spoken yeah. about there's a lot yeah. about the 24 hour news cycle and basically what we've created is football as you see in a weekend who then have to kind of hide away yeah. during the week yeah. to keep themselves private and, and which it's quite sad in a way it's almost like it, it, it and footballers and, and I was, this is sort of a side point but footballers to a degree suffer from the fact that people want constant access to them but then they don't like the access that they get sometimes, yeah. so they get hammered for it. So it's like, you know, footballers, some footballers will do like a really normal thing, like go on a night out after work. If they've had a bad day at work, do you know what? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, me and the wife are going to go out. Yeah. You know, me and my partner, we're going to go out and have some dinner, go to a bar, have a drink. That's what we'd all do. You know, if we, yeah. any of us had a bad day at work, I know I would say, so can we just go out, and, you know, just go for some food, just switch off and all the rest of it. A footballer does it. How dare he go out and enjoying himself after losing that three points yeah. against Millwall today? I, I just the disgrace. Thought, I just thought it was a really interesting like contrast between like that era of football, and that's probably why it's quite revered in a way. Yeah, and it's quite sought yeah. after by like fans because there's, there's still fans from that era. 
today and they're probably going well, actually, just something back, a bit simpler about it isn't yeah, it back in the day this you never had all this yeah like, you never yeah. had all i'm gonna the transfer thing was then interesting the first thing i thought of was coutinho when he just went on strike and i was like <laughs> imagine that I <laughs> imagine that i thought it was day. very interesting around um was it tranquil you said he'd been told to to leave essentially yeah when paisley came and in. he kind of lingered and didn't know what to do with himself yeah. and you thought that's another example of we talk about it all the time now with footballs not knowing what to do, but like back then it was even less for you to do. There wasn't the punditry to go into. There wasn't as many coaching roles. You also to go couldn't. Into. Someone like Bill Shanky wouldn't have been able to go. I'm really struggling with this, you know, lads. Like I'm really struggling oh, with, you know. Not. And we we obviously Bill Shanky is on our on our on our intro theme, and the, you know, a lot of that is because there was a a belief that he had as to what football was and what football could be and what it meant to people that we resonate with, and that's why we use his his quote. And as you say, he was there was a man who was, for all intents and purposes, in a city like Liverpool, a football club like Liverpool that has had the people that they've had associated with it over the years. He is almost tippy top of that. He's a god at that club. And even him, when he had to walk away, couldn't walk away. And can you imagine how difficult that must have been to go? You can't even you can't go turn around to, to someone at the club and go, look, I'm really struggling. Is there any welfare support for me? Is there any, or you know, even, is there any well-being support? Even or? nowadays, you'd be made a club ambassador. You'd be at every game. Being you'd being be the shaking sweets. hands. Yeah. Well, you see that with you see that with Fergus, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. And they have a legends lounge now. Yeah. I think at most top clubs, and you go at least they're still involved. Yeah. They're talking football two, three nights a week. They're meeting people. That t- yeah. Back then, it was, you're not needed, son. Yeah, uh, you go. Yeah, I it doesn't matter what you've done. Go sit at home with the wife. And, and back then, it was very much man earns the money. Yeah. Wife stays at yeah. home. And it was like a cultural thing. It was like, no, I can't sit at home. Yeah. But then, I, I mean, there's, uh, just quickly, uh, on another example of that around that era is, is Brian Clough. And mm. you see towards the end, and it's quite shocking to look at. Oh, it, when you it, look back on videos of it, yeah. Uh, look back at him in the 90s, and you're thinking, Football's taking a lot from you here, yeah. Uh, and and you see it, and you're thinking, well, there's an example where someone's mm. just gone, should we just quit while we're ahead? Yeah, and you know we might have been a, a little bit better. I suppose in a way it makes what happened with the end of Sir Alex Ferguson's career so all the more kind of incredible that he was able to leave on his own terms mm. and leave at the top of the game at his age. <laughs> considering yeah, the considering yeah, the eras yeah. he'd straddled, I mean, he was yeah. managing in like the eighties, yeah. And he, 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 if you think about it, he was managing in the 80s and his last game that he ever managed in professional football, Romelu Lukaku was scoring against them. So it demonstrates mm. the span of time that, that some of those people kind of, you know, worked across and the change in nature of the environments and stuff as well. And and we complain about football being on seven days a week now. I mean, it is a <laughs> <Yeah>. disgrace. <laughs> um, lads, I'm going to wrap us up there. Thanks for um, for your time as always, boys. Thanks for your, for your thoughts and for your, um, you know, and for your... your, your your knowledge, your footballing knowledge, it's Thank, always thanks, always mate. greatly appreciated. Especially because I know absolutely nothing about football. That's not true. Oh, cheers, mate! I know all the players, <laughs> Freddie Umberg and all of them. Um, right, so I'm going to wrap us up there. Thank you to you, the listener, for listening today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Now you will know from the last few weeks we've had little mini quiz after our our interviews. We interviewed David before we started doing the mini quizzes, so. We've got a classic quick fire with David to hand you over to. All the more enjoyable because you won't have heard one for a little while. I'm sure you're excited. I'm excited and I've already listened to it. I'm excited to listen to it again. Um, but yeah, so we'll be back on there on Friday, back in your ears with another Euros episode. By then, we'll have had quite a plethora of games for us to discuss. Probably too many games, if anything. Too many. 
Um, but at least none of them involve West Brom or Burnley, so that's something to look forward to, I certainly think so. So thank you, the listener. We're going to hand you over now to David Fairclough's Quick Fire. Thank you for joining us as usual. If you want to find us on Twitter, you can do. Our handle is at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use the hashtag, where's the talking, lads? Now, if you are in a position where you need to speak to somebody about your mental health, I'm going to point you in the direction of a couple of organisations. The first one is the Samaritans, and their phone number is 116123, and that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Or you can call the Calm Zone, which is 0800 58 58 58, and that phone line's available 5pm to midnight. So I'll hand you over now to David's Quickfire, and then we'll see you again on Friday. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, yeah, so best player you ever played with? Well, I mean, obviously the the the, um, the obvious one is Kenny, um, but equally, and I always say this, people like Emlyn Hughes and Ray Clements, uh, Graves and S were 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 so fantastic in their own ways. You know, I mean, Emlyn Hughes. I know he, 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 you know, for a lot of people, I mean, it wasn't a long time ago in my life, but. You know, he was so easily forgotten. I can't believe he was. Mm. He was awesome. Mm. Really, really awesome. Doesn't get. Doesn't sometimes doesn't get the the, the, the praise that he, he should have done. What about the best player you ever played against? Um, I, I prob- probably. Uh, I mean, there, there there are a few. I was very lucky to play a lot of a lot of the the great Dutch players. Didn't get on the pitch the night we actually played against Johan Cruyff. I was I was sub. I don't know whether that counts. But I played, you know, people like Rude Kroll and Naiskins and people like that. But two that often stand out are uh, Zico. I played against Zico and uh, he, he was fantastic. And um, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, which uh, maybe uh, with yeah. I thought Rummenigge was, was, was fantastic. Not many people used to give Phil, Phil Neal a run around, but Phil Neal couldn't get near Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. Apart from the Saint Etienne goal, then is there another highlight that people maybe forget about in your career? A personal mm. favourite? Someone, someone named a random one only to me a few days ago, uh, which was, was a goal against Man City. At um, uh, we got beat actually in the end. Uh, I scored before half time. A great team goal um, and. Uh, um, and then City came back in the second half and beat us 3-1 <laughs> um, I think they, they had about four centre forwards on uh, in the second half they had Rodney Marsh Joe Royal uh, Brian Kidd I mean, everybody everybody who played for them seemed to be a centre forward um, <laughs> but uh, yeah that one that one is that, that one's a good memory the goal against Middlesbrough is, 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 a, is a nice one to I, I, I like seeing that one from time to time uh, one in the where I cut in from right side and uh, left foot into into the Anfield Road goal. Who's your um, current favourite footballer? Uh, oh gosh, this will hurt many, I suppose. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne. Yeah, yeah. Probably Hard to argue well. with him, isn't it? Hard to yeah. argue with him. Yeah, unfortunately, can't say a Liverpool one for the for the moment, but De Bruyne <laughs> has been brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, who's a better super sub, yourself or are we going to Solskjaer? Ooh, I thought you were going to say Divock Origi, but uh, <laughs> uh, well, the, there are there are statistics out there to say that number-wise, my numbers beat Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's. But, uh, 
but he scored in a European Cup final and I didn't. And uh, and for that, um, you know, I've <laughs> got to be I've got to be jealous. You know, but I, I was lucky enough to, and I say lucky enough, I met him uh, a few years ago when he was the coach of Man United Reserves. Uh, so really nice guy. We had a brief, brief conversation about the, uh, the substitute thing. Um, but there was, there was some numbers put out there. And because I didn't play as many games as him, in uh, so my, goals in, my goals were bigger than his. Uh, in, he had more games. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like better ratio. Yeah, yeah. My yeah. ratios were better, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but he was a Liverpoolian, which is uh, makes it all sadder, wasn't it? Because he was a uh, he was a member of the Liverpool fan club for many years. Really? I didn't know. Oh yeah, he was a paid up member of the Norwegian uh, Liverpool supporters club for uh, till he was got until he was about twenty or something. <laughs> was Probably. it?